This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the last full day of the presidency of Donald Trump, and the nation could finally heave a big sigh of relief. Maybe things will calm down. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the regulars, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Bernowski. Happy Tuesday. I hope you enjoyed the long weekend. Happy, Happy Tuesday. Tuesday. Hey, welcome back. Could get to used to this, right? Three-day weekends, we should have yeah, them every week. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. All right. Let's start our discussion. How does a Baldwin Wallace University professor say Donald Trump created a false universe of challenges for which Trump was the sole hero who could solve them? Jen Kuhn, this is one of my favorite stories of the past week. And I think Seth Richardson did a fantastic job taking this study and making it accessible and digestible and really interesting. What's the gist <laughs> of it? Well, maybe that's because it really was interesting. This study looked at about a year of Trump's tweets, and they started with the day in June 2015 when he declared his candidacy for president, and then they ended with his nomination at the Republican convention, so which was July 2016. So it was a buildup to his presidency, and it really shows how Trump crafted this alternate reality through social media during that time. Uh, the study amusingly is called The Art of the Spiel, analyzing Donald Trump's tweets as gonzo storytelling. And it aims to explain, you know, how, how this all happened. It was it was co-authored by Baldwin Wallace University sociology and criminal justice professor Brian Monahan. And he worked with R.J. Maritea, visiting professor of sociology, criminal justice and criminology at George Washington University. Anyway, it, it did. It went beyond, you know, simply how Trump used Twitter to create this alternate reality that didn't rely on empirical evidence. But it looked at how Trump used this platform as a storyteller to to launch his rise to the presidency. And uh, they they only studied the tweets that in, included commentary. They filtered out like the retweets and the and the links and so forth. So they ended up with. Um, you know, about 3,900 uh, tweets. And and so they explain how he used this gonzo type of, you know, first person self-flattering type storytelling. You know, we all know Hunter S. Thompson associated with, with gonzo storytelling that's like exaggerated and so forth. But anyway, they, they used a method called ethnographic content analysis, which I had never heard of before, but they looked for these patterns and, and meanings, not only in the tweets themselves, but how the audience might be interpreting them. Then they separated them into these rhetorical frameworks, outlining how he created this, this false reality. And, you know, we don't have time to go deep into all yeah, but, this, but, but I would recommend reading, you know, it, it basically... If I could just read one quote from this, this kind of like sums it up. It says, much of Trump's communications are in service of a story he's crafting that is primarily about himself and is littered with grievances. 
um, self-praise and an unrelenting litany of constructed threats and dangers. And then they go on to say the prominence of adherence, deep stories in his self-serving mediated storytelling serves as fodder for the larger spiel that he's unfurling, one that depicts a world that needlessly imperiled by all sorts of nefarious others, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and then he appoints himself the savior figure, the only right. one so who can. They, they use okay. some real examples, right? So immigration, he paints the picture that that bloodthirsty rapist immigrants are coming into the country and endangering all of us. He paints that narrative. Not true, but he uses some anecdotal stuff, plays off a certain people who might have been in the news, makes a false narrative about them. The second part is blame the administration for allowing it. This administration, the Obama administration did all this. And the third part is I'm the guy who can save you. Uh, I can stop these these bloodthirsty immigrants from crossing into the border. We'll build a wall and Mexico will pay for it and all of his nonsense. And it was very effective. They found that this kind of thing, this kind of storytelling, as as fictional as it might be, plays really well and and the number of tweets that he was doing was far exceeding the the average of even the power users and it wasn't just immigration there were a whole bunch of issues they looked at what's fascinating though is they only looked at this up until the election they i know the I mean, look, years. exactly anyway it's a it's fascinating story you're right people should go and read it because seth laid it out really well as did the, uh, the the researchers we should i i it is being published in a peer-reviewed journal so it's not it's right. not nonsense it's right. um it's been reviewed by peers and accepted for publication you're listening to this week in the cle a cleveland worker with close ties to city councilman ken johnson has been hit with federal charges two years after the plain dealer in cleveland.com laid out major questions about johnson's expense reports what are the details and what might this mean to Johnson? Chris Ranowski, when Mark Namick was in his final year here as a Metro columnist, he did some pretty spectacular reporting laying out a whole lot of anomalies about Ken Johnson. And it's taken a long time for this federal investigation we reported way back then to finally bear some fruit. But bear fruit it did. Right. So a 35-year-old employee of the city by the name of Robert Fitzpatrick was charged with conspiracy to commit theft from a federal program. And he is uh, expected to make some court appearances soon. And and of course, it's worth noting that this is a ongoing investigation. The, the charge Friday did not identify uh, Ken Johnson by name in any court documents, uh, but it did refer to a person by the name of, uh, he, they called him Official One. And, and of course, if you go back and you look at our reporting, everything that was contained in this complaint against Fitzpatrick pretty much lines up exactly with the reporting that, that we did a, a couple of years ago that, that sort of laid out Fitzpatrick's relationship with Johnson and, and the reports that, that Johnson submitted uh, monthly reimbursement forms to the council's office each month for several years, seeking a maximum amount of $1,200 each time he attached information that, that Fitzpatrick perform services for his ward that, that really never got done. And, and so, you know, basically this, this all comes down to somebody writing checks uh, for some, for some, for some stuff, like basically kind of falsifying timesheets and falsifying expense forms that council member to, submitted to the city council for reimbursement. 
There's a clock ticking on this investigation because it's an election year. And it, this has ramifications, obviously, for Johnson. But it also has ramifications for Council President Kevin Kelly, who's running for mayor, because, as you'll remember, Mark Damick was writing about this over and over, pointing up new anomalies. And for the longest time, Kelly did nothing to stop it. He finally did. But I mean, it felt like a year went by before he finally took steps to require Johnson to itemize his expenses and stop putting in nonsense forms. So I would think that the people running against Kelly will point to this as, as a failing on his part. And the people who live in Johnson's word really deserve to know, is he a criminal or not? And I'm, it, it's taken forever for the feds to do this. When Mark Namick laid it all out for him two years ago, basically they had to go interview a few people and they could decide whether to file the charges. Namick did all the work. And I, I have no idea why this is coming out now. But but there is urgency now because in November they're all up for election. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, there's a two year gap between the start of the writing of these stories and, and, and now, but this, the, the, the allegations date back almost 10 years ago. So this is, you know, what that's something to me that, that struck me as, as kind of mind blowing about this when we started writing about it is not, not just, you know, how long, it's taken them to do this investigation, but just how long this has apparently been going on and, and either nobody noticed or nobody cared or somebody turned a blind eye to it. But you're right. It, it's, you know, now that we're coming up to an election, I think, I, I, I think in part, you're going to, you're going to see a lot more uh, uh, from this, I think in the coming months, but I, hopefully, hopefully they wrap up the investigation at some point. <laughs> What's interesting here is there's a rumor going around in City Hall. If he gets charged, they have a tradition of being allowed to appoint their successors if they have to leave council. And they're expecting Ken Johnson to try to appoint his son, which I think would be the equivalent of Vesuvius going off there. I'm not sure that the council members would allow that. And if they did, it would put them all in jeopardy for their own reelection attempts. We'll have to see what ensues. When has that happened before? Like, has that ever happened when there, there was a criminal investigation involved? I, I, I'm just curious. You know, the last you... council member, I think, to get charged with a crime in office was Bobby White. And I can't remember if he got to appoint his successor or not. We'll have to go back and look. I could be wrong. I don't, but I don't think there was another one since him. But, you know, my memory, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> this week in the CLA. Joe Maraducci, who has been head of the Downtown Cleveland Alliance seemingly forever, is retiring. What are some of his accomplishments and what are the major challenges facing his successor? Laura Johnston, this is a, a dicey time for a transition for a, a community development corporation that's dedicated to downtown because downtown's in trouble. All of us have learned we don't need to be in downtown offices to get our jobs done. And it raises a lot of questions about what the future of downtown will be, who will populate it in the daytime, who will populate it in the nighttime. And now we're going to have this transition to a new leader of this Community Development Corporation. So what does it all mean? Yeah, so you said it feels like forever, and it really has been in terms of the Downtown Cleveland Alliance because Joe Marinucci was the first president. The group was founded in 2006. There's never been another leader. And before that, Marinucci led the Downtown Cleveland Partnership for four years, which was a different 
group that was rolled into it. Um, think about all the things that have happened in in that time. 20,000 residents have moved into downtown, many to newly renovated apartment buildings that used to be office space. Public Square was redone. The convention center and hotel were built. According to the Downtown Cleveland Alliance, Marinucci helped bring $7.3 billion of investment to downtown. And think of, and that includes like the uh, U.S. Bank Plaza, the Ralph J. Perk Plaza, a little further on the east. And we've had some big events, the 2016 Republican National Convention, the baseball all-star game. We're going to have the NFL draft. So that is a lot of stuff to brag about in the past. But you were right. <laughs> this is a big question going forward. The Downtown Cleveland Alliance uh, was created for, uh, by an assessment on property owners within the boundaries. And they, they pay for these safety escorts, business development, street cleaning services. So they have been played a huge role in downtown success. And I hope that they will be able to get together to kind of figure out the next phase of downtown. They did help create this downtown recovery response fund to help small businesses affected by the virus and damaged in the May 30th protests. But yeah, the future is has a big question mark there. I would have bet $100 that you would have listed as one of his accomplishments, the tall ships. I can't believe <laughs> you didn't mention it. And it's been multiple tall ships that have come, come in that time. I should point out that Mr. Marinucci was one of the very few outside our staff guests on this podcast. He spent a half hour with us at the beginning of the pandemic talking about what was ahead. Wish him well. He's got a long career and he's done a lot for downtown. Who will be his successor, Laura? Do we have any idea? Uh, I don't know for right now. They're going to hand it over to an interim in the meantime who's worked there before. So I think they're going to come up with a plan and, and interview some people. You know, that's kind of like the mayor's job. It's like, who would want this right now? <laughs> it's a really <laughs> difficult challenge. Well, Why would you step into this I actually, now? I was driving back from the ski hill this weekend and they closed the uh, 490 part. So I had to like drive downtown um, get off and get back on the highway. And I was like, when was the last time I was driving around? Like I'm, you know, in front of progressive field, like when was the last time I was down here? Like I know. a I long know. time. I think a lot of people feel that way. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Does COVID-19 get all the blame for Ohio setting a record for deaths in a single year in 2020? Jane Coon, I was thrown by this story. I figured that, that there'd be a record because we have all this extra death from covid but in Rich Exner's story, it says that the, the deaths that are attributed to COVID don't account for this record year altogether. Or is it more that they haven't identified it all yet? What's going on? Honestly, I think it might be a little more of the latter. Uh, but it, COVID does get a significant amount of the blame for this. The, the number of deaths from all causes in Ohio last year far exceeded the previous years. It, it was well above the nearly 10,000 deaths that have been attributed to the coronavirus in, in 2020. Now, these figures are as of Friday when, when Rich prepared this story, but the uh, preliminary data shows at least 139,072 Ohioans died in 2020. That was an increase of 17,225 from, from the average number, which is 121,847 over the last five years. And, you know, he even went back 10 years and, you know, we, we haven't seen anything like this. The data is marked as preliminary, partly because the manner of death for a bunch of cases is still pending and, and more deaths are still being added every day. So, you know, they have to go back a lot of times. It just takes them a really 
long time. So, you know, I thought it was interesting. He had a quote from the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner who said, you may not see everyone who dies of coronavirus necessarily get attributed to it. He said, I don't think it's intentional. The natural deaths being up across the state in our area, it's a pandemic. That's what's going to happen in the middle of a pandemic and tracking that stuff in real time is is hard. Um, the other hard thing is the Ohio Department of Health doesn't have a specific listing in its its mortality data set. They have like 113 causes of death, but not one specifically for COVID-19. So they're telling us those cases probably fall under this category that's called unspecified acute lower respiratory infection. Um, and we had, you know, nearly 10,000 of those uh, assigned in 2020 in comparison to none in 2019 and six. And um, anyway, the, the, you know, that some of the other ones could, could fall under like symptoms and signs and abnormal clinical lab findings, not elsewhere classified and, and things like that. So, and all other diseases, that's another category. So I guess I don't really have a definitive answer to your question. I think uh, coronavirus is responsible for a heck of a lot of this and maybe more than we know, but maybe not all of it. What's going to be interesting is this time next year, whether we're breaking the record again. We had 10 months of COVID in the country last year, and we're hoping we don't go 10 months before we get the vaccine all out. But the vaccine rollout has been very bumpy. And as the more contagious variants of the coronavirus are out there, lots more people are getting sick, which means lots more people die. It's not more fatal, but the numbers are bad. And I just wonder, as we race to the vaccine, whether these final months are just going to have a very high death toll that that gives competition to last year's numbers. I hope not. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the plans for the storied building that was best known as the home for the Baricelli Inn? Chris Ranowski, there's a little bit of controversy here, it sounds like, right? Yeah, so the the developers of the, the Baricelli Inn were also the developers of a very controversial apartment building that's that's pretty much right next to it. And there there has been some rejection of the Baricelli Inn apartments, which were were 44 apartments that were going into Little Italy uh, on a lot between Cornell and Random Roads. And some of the people who are, you know, in charge of, of deciding what gets built in, in Little Italy were, were a little taken aback by the design and how it didn't fit with the aesthetic of the neighborhood. So now there is a plan to actually take the, the physical inn, which the apartments were named after and, and was a, a, a you know, a, a restaurant and a bed and breakfast for a very long time. Um, they want to turn the inside of that into more apartments that would be right on Cornell and Murray Hill. Uh, so it was last home to the Washington Place Bistro and Inn, which closed in May. Uh, and the owners of it are, had basically said they just want to turn it into more apartments. Uh, and and it, this is a this is a pretty historic building. It dates back to 1896, and you know a, a really gorgeous building but you know everything's becoming apartments again (laughs) yeah i know but if you if you keep on this track in little italy do you lose what little italy is i mean little italy is a place where you went to italian restaurants and you really took advantage of of the the kind of merchants and the, the more you take buildings like this that once welcome the public 
and turn them into apartments? Does it start to destroy what this district was? I think there's a, I think there's a little bit of, of like, I can see this from both sides because you do, in order to make that a really vibrant neighborhood, you do need people living there and you do need, and, and frankly, real estate there is, is, you know, there's not a lot of it, you know, there's not a lot of places that you can build and there's not a lot, there's not a lot that's empty, to be honest. I mean, most of the, the main strip of little Italy is still, you know, it's still humming, you know, it, it just because we're in the pandemic, I think a lot of the restaurants and the bakeries that are there are still doing pretty okay. Um, and, and I think once we get on the other side of all of this, I think it will still be, you know, a hot neighborhood for, for people, young people, old people, everybody to live in. But, you know, and it also has, you know, it has access to RTA. It has, it, it, you know, there, there, there's a lot of stuff in that neighborhood that is very, uh, attractive to pe- to people and and so I can I can understand that being a, a place where you want more residents living but but you're right I, you know every time we every time we turn an old historic building into apartments we we run the risk of losing longtime businesses and and places for new businesses to to come in and and for people to 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 you know start down their own journey of creating a restaurant or whatever. Well, if I own real estate along that strip and I see that there's a huge demand for residences, I'm going to be more tempted to to do it. But you're right. You do need residents to have a thriving neighborhood. So there's probably a balance. That right. And it, it's one of the few neighborhoods that you can live in. It's, it's a live in neighborhood where you can, you can get around by walking and going to the market and, and going to a restaurant. And, and, and it's, it's attractive for that reason. I think, you know, there's, 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 if you, if you live in Ohio city or, or Tremont, you still have to rely a lot on a car. Little Italy is one of the few, the few neighborhoods that actually encourages, you know, sure you know getting not getting rid of your car but but it's it's one where you know you can you can get around on your feet okay. and 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 still live a pretty great life okay you're listening to this week in the CLE police in Washington DC and many state capitals including Columbus prepared for armed protesters who planned demonstrations over the weekend Laura Johnson what did we see in Columbus and elsewhere was it anything like what had been predicted no, thankfully. I'm very thankful because I was working this weekend. <laughs> and I was like, please, uh, very anxious uh, leading up to it. So it was, it was pretty quiet nationally, actually. Um, many state houses and capitals, security and the media outnumbered the actual number of protesters in D.C., thousands of national uh, guard troops uh, from across the country are there for security. If you've seen the pictures where they're like sleeping in the Capitol, I guess three people have been arrested at checkpoint incidents there. Uh, but the governments were prepared. Uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Pelzer and Andrew Tobias have been reporting on us uh, on this for us. And they talked about um, Mike DeWine said he was going to beef up security with National Guard forces. And they were there. There was military vehicles, Jersey barriers. There were tall fences. Um, and they so they were there on Sunday. We made sure that they were very safe and they they knew to stay out of the way of any kind of trouble. There are about 50 people at the Columbus State House that came. There were some people with assault rifles. They told um, some people I saw it on Twitter that they were there as kind of props. And obviously they didn't use it. I think the most heated it got was uh, two people with battling bullhorns. Thank goodness. Um, there were demonstrators that waved signs and flags. There are a handful of pro-Biden demonstrators nearby, as well as a guy dancing while wearing headphones and a dancing for peace shirt. 
So they stayed for a couple of hours in the afternoon, and they pretty much went home before the Browns game. So this has got to be costing a fortune. How long do we think that all the Capitals will have all of the this personnel and all of this equipment up? I mean, do we, certainly through tomorrow because of the inauguration, but do they keep all this stuff around for the first month of the new presidency? Or is there, are, are they ever going to feel like the threat of the, these armed uh, Trump supporters is going away? That's a really good question. And I, not that I have not seen governors or officials say when these things will be coming down, probably because they don't want to give any ideas to uh, mobs. But it is a question, you know, for so long, I just think back to like September 11th and how you got used to seeing the barriers put up around national monuments and things like that. And gradually, I mean, it took years for that to go away. I, I don't think that will be the case here. But um, once they get in place, these things aren't really quick to leave unless it's like a one-time deal, like the debate here in Cleveland. Those went up pretty fast and came back down. I don't know. Um, I don't know if Jane has Jane um, Cahoon has any more knowledge on this one. <laughs> I just I fear it's going to be the the new normal. And um, from what I've read, I think the intelligence on some of these troublemakers is that they're kind of waiting for us to be complacent about this. And so I, I would be surprised to see the barriers come come down right away. Chris Wernowski, the the capital insurrection, a lot of people look at that as a great recruiting tool for, for the crazies. So when you have a follow-up day of protest like like Sunday was supposed to be and hardly anybody shows up, does that does that hurt the image of these people as the, the renegades are gonna take the country back? I mean, it depends on so many of these people don't live in a reality that I understand. So, <laughs> so it's difficult for me to get in the head of somebody to see what, you know, how they are going to interpret the, what Andrew Tobias perfectly described as a very much like street preacher invade your, your college campus free speech area vibe that, that was happening in Columbus. They pulled back on, Remember that every every capital was supposed to have like a, a mini insurrection over this weekend and, and leading up to the the inauguration. And then all of the chatter in right wing channels pivoted to, oh, this is a trap and they're going to take all of our guns if we show up. So so nobody showed up, really. And and it was all of, all about nothing this weekend. Well, that was one. There was also the thread that you and I have talked about that that this military buildup is actually the genius of Donald Trump because today he's going to take over the country because he directs the military. And so all the the wing nuts that were supporting this have said, you know, lay low for two weeks, make sure you have a supply of food. And two weeks from now, the new government will be fully installed and all the traitorous of treacherous Democrats will be gone. The journalists will be gone. I mean, there there is a number of people peddling that nonsense that, uh, online, and that may be another reason they stayed home. I, you know, I, I, I don't. It, again, it's it's hard for me to understand this, but but I think I think what happened was nothing really went their way on the six. Like it 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 will serve as something of a like you said, a recruiting tool for, for people who, but, but I mean, you got to think about how many people were there seemingly just to get stuff for their social media. I mean, 
it, 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 it's so much of this was just for Instagram and just for Twitter and just for parlor. And, 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 and in doing so, everybody incriminated themselves. Everybody identified themselves. You know, who's, who's, who's left as an authority figure within these movements that isn't under scrutiny now for what they did, you know, the other right. day. You know, and, and I think what, what will happen is, is the incoming administration will will take a look at the organizations like the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, which you know has a, a presence here in Ohio, and and other domestic terrorist organizations that that saw their moment on the six. They they took it and and that was that. And, yeah, that and, yeah, right. I and, mean, the and, new presidency could be could be the end, but it does raise questions about how long you have to be vigilant. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, we'll have to leave it there. But, I, you know, I raised the question in my note to you guys this morning about how, how will people in Northeast Ohio view the inauguration tomorrow? Will it be with joy? Will it be with relief? Will it be with exhaustion? What do you think? Uh, the I mean, above. Yeah. <laughs> good, good take, Jane, because I feel like everyone is just we've been living in this weird coronavirus world for, you know, it feels like a year, even if we're not there yet. And and, you know, normally an inauguration be a big pomp and circumstance celebration with the parades. And it's just like one other thing. I mean, it's just a weird time. And and so I think there'll be a huge mix of emotions. But I'm, I'm getting at the idea that we've lived through four years of a president who, whether you like him or not, he he has had no end of hateful statements. He has he's got he's had the country on edge for four years with with horrendously awful things that he says and that ends it's over so so there's got to be some sense that we can calm down right chris ranowski you probably disagree with that statement <laughs> i i i hope i i i think that it's it, it will i think the change will also be kind of jarring for people i i mean it's it's been very unusual having donald trump not be on twitter i mean i can't it's like walking around after it's like getting out of an abusive relationship and finally feeling free for, for a time. And I know that seems dramatic, but I, I, you know, that, that is a very common comparison that I'm seeing. And I think what will be nice, you know, in the short term is, is actually having a focus on policy. You know, I read a column yesterday uh, in the times that, that said what's, what's so maddening about Joe Biden's coronavirus plan is how, how straightforward it is and how, and how easy it, it is and how right. easy it is. And right. so, and so it's, it's, we haven't had, you know, Donald Trump represented one thing. And I think it's a lot of people's first time paying attention to politics. I see a lot of people who have never talked about politics in their lives, suddenly engaged in this process. And it'll be interesting to see how they respond to it being done well, if Biden can manage to right. do it well. And it's, you know, it's the bar is set so freaking low for Biden that he, he, he should be able to clear it pretty easily. And we'll see. I got to wind you down here. Right. We're way over time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. 